week's episode is brought to you by Support the Mountain's Herbal Parasite Cleanse. This formula targets the small and large intestinal tracts and larvae, the most broad-spectrum formula available today. 100% organic, formulated by Dr. Mikio Sanki, author of the Esoteric Acupuncture Series. For 10% off your first bottle, visit shopyogahub.com and use the coupon code CLEANSE at checkout. Hello and welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Christina Suzuma, and with me is our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman. Hello, Doc. Hello, Christina. What's up? Uh, sup, Doc? <laughs> <laughs> Don't say that. <laughs> it's a bouncy day today. Uh, I'm excited. We're going to be doing some serious bouncing today because we're going into levels of consciousness that I'm hoping that we've never explored before. Mm. Greetings, everybody. Welcome to Magical Medical Tour. I'm Dr. Glenn Wallman, and I will be your medical guide along with Christina today as we travel through another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy searching for optimal health. Christina, we're going to be speaking with a colleague and friend of mine, Dr. David Tresimer, a psychologist who has just written a book, The Counselor, uh, and it's called The Counselor, uh, As If Soul Mattered. Mm. He's the author and co-author of many books and journal articles, and he also, having studied and trained at Harvard University in psychology, he did his research, which focused on transpersonal realms of consciousness. Mm. So we're going to learn a lot about the transpersonal realms of what we're about today and what Magical Medical Tour is about. Okay, I'm bouncing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He also does workshops in personal development, and he's always trying to create a bridge between psychology and the general public. But before I introduce him... If people want to get in touch with us, how do they do that? Thank you, Glenn. Now, at any time during the show, you can feel free to ask a question or make a comment simply by scrolling down <coughs> on your screen and typing it into the comment box. Now, you can do this at any time because you might be listening to the podcast a year from now or even watching this um, video a year or two from now. And please uh, ask your questions, make your comments. We'll be sure to get them, get them over to our guest or Dr. Woolman and uh, send you a reply. So uh, if you are calling in, instead of typing it into the comment box, you can call us at 818-LET'S-TALK. 818-LET'S-TALK. Thank you so much, Doc. Uh, you're welcome. I could spend uh, an hour introducing Dr. Tresmer, but I think the information that he's going to give us and the conversation that we have will be much more important, and we'll learn enough about him uh, as we go along, I'm sure. So without further ado... David, welcome to Magical Medical Tour. Thank you. Thank Hello, you. David. Hello. <laughs> Hello. What a pleasure to see you both. That sounded like a much more interesting hello to Christina than to me, though. How did you know that? How did you know that? I, I what have my own. Did, what cues did you pick up on that, you, that would reveal that truth to you? It's my own transpersonal consciousness. Excellent. It's functioning accurately. Yes. I, and I hope during the entire show you keep giving me grades on how I'm functioning. Oh, okay. Okay, I'll get out my pen and paper here. Well, here we go. Ready to go. This show is uh, for credits, right? Yeah. yeah, continuing education. So, David, uh, as the medical guide... I always like to give our audience uh, a path that we're going to take. So at the beginning, we'll learn a little bit about you. Then we'll learn a little bit about psychology itself and the work that you do. Then we're going to go into your book a little bit and talk about mm -hmm. anthroposophic uh, psychology. Which That's where uh, we have to begin. That's where we have to begin? Yeah, because otherwise, I mean, it's such an off-putting title. It's like, <laughs> what are you talking about? Let's So let's... You know, to know these syllables is to love them. So let's go over the syllables, all right? Fabulous. <laughs> all right, great. That's all right. <laughs> Psychology. So, uh, so just, just before we go on, so everybody that was thinking that I was actually medical guiding, ignore that. <laughs> I think we should get into medicine because that is, uh, in the history of psychology, that's absolutely key. So, And anthroposophy has more to say to the medical world than most forms of philosophy or psychology. So, but let me go over these syllables. Is that okay? Please do. All right. Psychology, psyche, logos, psychology. 
logos, pattern, psyche, the soul. Psychology is meant to be patterns of the soul, study of patterns of the soul. For the most part, psychology has dropped that, dropped its own history, which is too bad. So, psychologies, psyche logos, patterns of the soul, anthroposophic, anthropos, Sophia. Sophia, the living being, intelligent being of creation of the earth, meaning all four elements, earth, uh, water, air, and fire. So all of the elements, we, we're not on the earth, on the goddess, so to speak, right? We're in it, where the atmosphere is very thick, and we're in her creation. So Sophia, Anthropos, Greek for the possible human being, the template of the human being, a Greek word. Uh, and so Anthroposophy, begun by Rudolf Steiner about 100 years ago, this uh, philosophy for life. Uh, anthroposophy really looks at how anthropos, the the primal human being and the destiny of humanity, destiny is a key word, the destiny of humanity relates to Sophia, the living being in whom we live, not on whom, but in whom. So anthroposophic psychology, the path of the soul through the relationship between the template of divine humanity and divine creation. How's that? that I think that covers it. Wow. Um, I'm, as you're as you're saying that, I'm thinking I have a a new grandniece who's about five months old now, and her name is Sophia. And I hope all of this comes into play throughout her life. Sophia is now the most popular girl's first name. Hmm. I think, and if you look, you can look up these things about the frequency in which names are used. Uh, it wasn't always true, and that's really coming. It's rising now. Uh, as a used as as a first name, that's mm. fascinating. I think that indicates a connection with Sophia, which is not just a name, but is a sound. Sophia. But we could go into that later. Mm. Mm. I'm already loving this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I don't have any any more questions. How about you, Christina? I, 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 I think we should name everything Sophia now. <laughs> There's a connection. Oh, that's but, great. But each of the sounds, I actually think, you know, the anthroposophy posits the use of sounds and particular syllables of, as a healing modality, which is fascinating. Mm. Both psychological, so as a psychology sort of coming in through the head and the heart and, uh, and, and working with the whole being. So that's something we could talk about someday. Mm. So this both is, of you, Christina and uh, Glenn, have have syllab- uh, are syllables or sound phonemes really phonemes that relate to your essential nature. This is the the sound that you've heard the most frequently of any sound in your life is are the words of your name, and you've learned to um, relate to those sounds. And they go in really deeply. Uh, someone can actually say your name from far across a room, across Grand Central train station. You can hear your name spoken and you perk up. And mm-hmm. that is because those particular sounds go very deeply into you. So uh, whenever I do a workshop, you know how you go around, please say your name kind of thing. And people do, oh, I'm John, I'm Joan, I'm James. I say, whoa, wait a minute. Now really sound out your name and slow it down. So my name would be David. And then you start to unpack these, the power that really exists in sound relating to your soul. So it's sort of part of psychology, path of the soul. Didn't the, uh, in the Sanskrit and the Pali languages, the syllables were, as you're speaking now, each sound had a vibration and each vibration had a meaning and, connection to many parts of many realms. Now, good. Thanks for that opener, because that's a difference between anthroposophic psychology and mainstream psychology. Anthroposophic psychology posits beings. I mean, mainstream says, haven't we gotten rid of that? That A hundred years ago, 300 years ago, we we can't do that anymore. I'm reading actually uh, uh, about uh, Descartes and how uh, he was so bent in the 17th century, so bent on getting rid of 
anything that was part of Aristotle's vitalism that had anything to do besides the body being a machine. So, I mean, he was committed to that. And uh, when you understand that the sounds are actually have a being quality, that they are in fact beings with independent intelligence. Now that's interesting. Yes. I wonder, should we be, as we have conversations as beings, should we be listening to sounds more than just the words and focusing on the words? I mean, should that be a whole different way of communication? Uh, we are rapidly, because of technology, losing some connections to the subtleties of the sense of sound and this, even the subtlety of the sense of word. People don't read or memorize or recite poems in the way they used to, mm -hmm. uh, to the degree they used to. And that's a loss. And it can be regained, but just people don't know about it because sound and word have been demeaned. And they, they have terrific power. The, the, the chanters knew this. The, the people who chanted mantras, mantrams knew this about the repetition of certain sounds, certain words, and, uh, and what power that has for your, you know, your spiritual uh, advancement, as well as just your daily health. When we talk about uh, psychology, even back to Aristotle and, and going through Descartes and a number of other philosophers and psychologists all through time, have things changed? Have, have we as a species... Do we have the same problems now that we did then, on just maybe with a slightly different uh, uh, picture frame around them? Thank you. For, this is great questions. Um, thank you. Um, from an anthroposophic point of view, the answer is no. Human consciousness evolves. Okay. And Sophia evolves. Changes occur in even the plasticity of the earth. So uh, that actually we are right now in the most, from an anthroposophic point of view, we are in the most dense creation of Earth from an anthroposophic, well, and also uh, Ken Wilber would agree that uh, it's very important that we go through this stage of um, densification, of rejection of the spirit, so that we could actually affirm our central, our I our individuality, our sovereignty, even though it's empty of spirit, and then begin to recall and come to the conversation, not as unconscious bliss beings, but actually come to the conversation as individuals to join in the conversation. You know, you, you just spoke about consciousness and unconsciousness. So I wonder if you would, would uh, for our audience, give us maybe your viewpoint or definition of unconsciousness, subconsciousness, and consciousness. That's great. Yeah. So one of the things in anthroposophic psychology, we feel that um, Roberto, Roberto Asagioli, with his vision of psychosynthesis, brought Steiner's ideas of psychology several steps ahead. And he really, because he's very specific about a higher unconscious and a lower unconscious, and then in sort of the middle, this, uh, this um, everyday unconscious. Because right now, you can access all sorts of things, but they're not actually happening. You could actually query, what did I eat this morning? And it'll come. That's, mm -hmm. that's in the central unconscious. Okay. The, the upper unconscious is the, these, these spiritual realities that occasionally dip in, that we actually access. The lower unconscious are these deep down drives and urges that Freud tried to understand as the id, the uh, instincts moving. But it's far more complicated than that, far more interesting. It, uh, Freud did great job, and... Uh, there's a lot more known, known now. But this idea of, of, of a, a higher unconscious and a lower unconscious, and then sort of in the middle we have this little place, I see you, <laughs> this little place where we can, we can access, but our consciousness is not, you know, it can access all sorts of things. Like, for example, can you feel 
what it feels like in your right knee right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that probably wasn't prominent in your thinking 20 seconds ago. Correct. And we have an access to many things, and, uh, but our consciousness, our present consciousness, what we really think of our, as our awakeness, is a fairly small part of even what's available. And then you talk about the higher unconscious and the lower unconscious, and you say you have experiences, everybody has experiences that are astonishingly downpourings of love or bliss or, or insight. And, uh, and then also they have these experiences of, you know, stuff welling up, you know, and you, you watch yourself go to the pantry and you, you watch your hand go up to the Oreo cookies and you pull them down and you watch yourself <laughs> opening them, right? And you start eating them and going, who's in charge? <laughs> That's more of a lower unconscious activity. Yeah. And the wonderful thing about anthroposophic psychology and, and some transpersonal views, uh, not all, but some, great work's been done in the last, what should we say, 50 years with transpersonal, um, is that when you penetrate into the above, something from below will arise. It's called mm-hmm. induction. Or when you penetrate into the below through going into some really difficult stuff that you, you know, that you don't want to deal with, but you know you have to do it, deal with it. You have to get through it. If you, when you go down, something you will actually have greater access to what's above. So mm. that's induction. That's uh, very that's accurately spoken about in anthroposophic psychology and only hinted at in other transpersonal philosophies. Do you find that if you're trying to get into the higher, it's better to penetrate the lower and allow the higher to come in, or do you go to the higher? Uh, you you simply should know that if you're trying to penetrate the higher, like meditating for two hours or chanting for two hours or all the different methods, oh, well, drugs would be one that some people use, uh, that the lower will open also. Mm, Yeah. Now, so we've talked about the unconscious. What about the subconscious or is that the same thing? Uh, what in what I've just presented to you, the subconscious would be understood as that sort of the middle realm that we're not aware of, but we can be aware of it. Do we need? Can we be aware of it on our own, or do we need a uh, anthroposophic uh, psychologist to work with us? No, the middle realm is available to you, to, available you, to you at all times. You just have to kind of think about it. You have to think about, okay, what about my my right elbow? What's happening there right now? You go, oh, yeah, well, there's all sorts of things. I can actually feel subtle feelings in my right elbow. But was I thinking about it 20 seconds ago? No, it's available. That's the subconscious, but not, but not pressing in on me at this moment. When Jung talks about the collective unconsciousness, could we blame that when we're reaching for the Oreo? <laughs> That's a great uh, isn't that a great picture? <laughs> kind of this, this feeling like behind my hand that's rising to the top shelf, there are thousands of desires of <laughs> millions of people. <laughs> sure, you can do that. Uh, when Jung talks about collective unconscious, he talks about really, he's actually hinting at, doesn't name it that, but he's hinting at anthropos. What is the collective humanity experiencing? And, and how do we uh, understand that? And he's talking about what's lifting up from below, but he's also talking about what's coming from, from above. So he's talking about expanding this zone further, right? That's really mm. the task of a conscious life, ah. is to expand what's available. It's not that you're thinking about everything at all times, but it's a, you expand it. Now, when mm. people try to go zingo, you know, with drugs, and, uh, uh, you know, or, uh, they try to ascend too swiftly. Mm-hmm. You know, what happens is that they, they can, you can, you can do amazing things. But it also means that mm-hmm. something from below, deep down, is going to come up. There's a good, uh, wonderful saying, which is, um, what's the difference between an angel and an archangel? An archangel has been deeper into hell. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like that. Mm-hmm. That's pretty interesting. You talked about expansion. Is that, is that when we're starting to think about transpersonal? 
Yes, um, you can understand. Transpersonal has various different categories. When you talk about um, the the work recently in the last, it's only about 10, 15 years uh, where uh, the Groff and his, uh, Stanislav Groff and his team were really working with prenatal memories, perinatal memories, which is in gestation. And uh, so, and you, because psychology just assumes, well, we don't really remember anything before the age of three, but we can access those things. We can access those memories. And he was very, very interested to uh, find out how those early experiences affect the unfolding of a life. Great work. We're going to talk about memory in a while, but I want to first get maybe your definition of mind. You know what? I'd really like to be rascally and just pass because Excellent. it's so fraught with uh, difficulties. And I, I, I will take the Fifth Amendment, which in this, in anthroposoph- anthroposophy, looks like this I would rather characterize than define. So we're going to be throughout this characterizing your mind. <laughs> You're cute. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's let's get into a little bit of psychology itself, and then I want to get into actually how we can heal the planet and heal uh, anybody who needs healing from a uh, mental, psychological level. When you first started out uh, in your training, what's different between what you learned then and what you know now? I studied with B.F. Skinner. Wow. Really? Yeah, back then. So a lot of people now don't even know who Skinner is, but he was really could be considered the father of modern behaviorism. He really saw human beings as a package of uh, learned responses uh, and a stimulus response um, view of the world that you are a package of habits that you've developed through learning. And some of those come from instinct. So it was, um, and then I, at this, a year later, I was studying Carl Jung's uh, depth psychology. So it was, uh, I really moved from Skinner's ideas. The struggle for the last 50 to 100 years has actually been between behaviorism and uh, I would call it what psychoanalytic depth psychology. So, uh, behaviorism has really seized the human being as a machine. And uh, it's something that Descartes really began in earnest because the history of this is so interesting. But <clears throat> Descartes <laughs> began this in earnest <laughs> to really understand the human being as a machine. And uh, so that if we could understand, if we could master the mechanics and the laws of the mechanics of that machine, then we could deal with it that way and if we just find the right drug and we'd be able to deal with any issue in the human being include the including these apparently psychological phenomena which skinner rejected as uh, sort of uh fluff uh, waste products um nothing really important it was it's actually the behavior that was important so behavior thus behaviorism on the other hand was um uh, psychoanalytic depth psychology, beginning with Freud. Freud was brilliant. And the, the, the older I get, the more I actually appreciate his genius and what he was dealing with. And uh, he really understood the human being as uh, a, a, a set of, and you're going to see some similarities here, he understood the human being as a set of instincts and drives that come into the world and then immediately have experiences that are are always thwarted in some way. And it was the quality of that thwarting or frustration that gave uh, an individual character. So you're saying the drive itself or the instinct is pure, but when it comes out and is manifested in our own actions and then experiences, the way that that happens over time, that develops our character. Yeah, that would be a very super quick uh, version of, of psychoanalysis because, <laughs> you know, there are, it was great to go to Freud's house recently in London and uh, because they preserved it and they have, 
his statuary there. He was a collector of antiquities, and uh, he really read into the themes of myths and uh, um, yeah, myths, biblical myths, Greek myths, uh, stories that had been were being collected at that time from South America about belief systems. He would actually read into those how human beings deal with these frustrations or di- directional movements of fundamental instincts. Mm. But get- underneath it, underneath it, just only one more point, underneath it, uh, there is, Freud would be very happy to, um, to agree with the, with the current uh, uh, medical understanding that human beings are, uh, are a batch of um, D- uh, DNA and conditioned responses. He would actually really enjoy that. Because he would feel that's 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 correct. All of this mythology on top is actually uh, only epiphenomena, epiphenomena, yeah, epiphenomena. That's why Jung broke with him because Jung said, "No, it's far more vast than that. There's mm-hmm. a, there are actually independently existing uh, energies that need to be taken into account." Jung did not go as far as saying that there were beings because they were all feeling smothered by the, uh, the, the churchianity of their time, which uh, said, well, there are beings and we know who they are and you can only get to them through us. Anthroposophy would say there are beings and you can access them. Anyone can access them through their own soul functions and their own connection with spirit. When you were with uh, Freud uh, in London, did you did you have any energetic connections? Uh, well, again, this terrific admiration for his opening up the habit patterns of the Victorian age, which we we call we, we, which is the, was the culture. People thought, well, I am the way I am. And that's, that's it. But Freud said, well, well, why are you the way you are? And to, and to see his couch, right? The couch. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> Do they let people sit on it or they have it cordoned off? It is definitely cordoned off. Yeah, I would think Otherwise, so. Otherwise, it would be threadbare twice over by now. Uh, uh, that's true. Uh, so, so continue on in, ter- in terms of your training. You went through that, and you've gone through probably a number of other experiences and uh, philosophies. And now you're at this point. Wh- where did the bridge come? I think I've always been connected with spiritual realities, and. Uh, it took me a while to find anthroposophy because Rudolf Steiner is very difficult to read. That's one of the reasons I, well, one of the motivations to write the book, The Counselor, as if soul and spirit matter, in the way that I did. I was editor and rewrote all the, ch- I mean, there are other contributors, but I rewrote everything because it was based on transcripts from lectures, and which is, I think, a fine way to get to a conversational quality without dozens of footnotes. Um, so I I really wanted to, I've always felt the desire to make that bridge and feeling that the absence of that bridge causes people who sense that there's something, something important, something greater in their lives, uh, don't have really access to uh, an understanding of what they sense to be true, but they can't find resources for that. Does that make sense? I actually feel that we're all counselors. We all we all take the role of uh, counseling others, of warmly listening to a niece or a nephew, or uh, or a lawyer listening to a client or a physician. Uh, and this is where bedside manner comes in. And you know, what what do people remember about their physician? Whether or not he or she had bedside manner. That's the most. That's the thing that's reported most. So you oh you went to see the doctor. What was it like? Mm-hmm. And what do you hear? You hear you don't hear about the 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 details, the facts. You hear about well, what was it like? What was it like to be with that other human being who has spent his or her life studying healing and the healthy human being? 
And that's, that's what has, and the studies show this. It doesn't actually matter. It's so interesting. The studies show it doesn't matter what is your theory of psychology. What is your technique? It's, it's, it's whether or not the, the counselor was able to be human with you, warm and listening and relational. That has a deeper effect on the outcome. So anybody could be a counselor then in, on some level as long as they're willing to be open and listen and uh, allow the person that needs the counseling to speak. Yeah, so you're demonstrating this now by the quality of your listening, and you actually listen to what I'm saying, which is very wonderful. I'm it's noticing. My, it's my uh, computer-side manner. <laughs> <laughs> Right. We're we're no longer we don't have beds anymore. It's all on Skype. My Skype <laughs> my Skype side manner. That's going to be the new medicine. Is yeah, there, and that's difficult. That's difficult to do because the screen actually, you know, we actually think there's so much going on on the screen, right? But actually, it's we've really limited the um, the bandwidth to um, to a very small bandwidth. And within that bandwidth, yes, a lot's going on, but there's all the rest of it. Do you, do you see, uh, you know, when we're talking, speaking of computers for a moment, and everybody's texting now, and they're doing all the emoticons and the LOLs and the short, brief, uh, I don't even know what to call them. I'm not sure what the word would be for these brief suggestions of what you're really meaning to say. How do you see that plays out in the future of interpersonal relationships? The, uh, the heart... And uh, those beings, such as your personal angel, that's a hint, just mm-hmm. to beware. My God, a personal angel, really? Well, sense what's behind you. Just sense it at any, sense it. Now, some other time, sense what's living behind you, what's imbuing you with, with a warmth towards life itself. So, the heart and the personal angel are being... They're, they're in a drought. <laughs> mm. Some of these uh, ways of relating. You know, here's an idea from anthroposophy, for example, uh, that we, we have experiences during the day. Anthroposophy recommends that you review those in the evening. You don't have to go over every single thing that happened. Just, just go backwards through the day and uh, sort of take, pick up a few pictures and just notice them. You don't even have to say, oh, that reminds me to do this. No, that's not this. Do that another time. This is just letting, going backwards through the pattern of the day and noticing a few pictures, a dozen pictures that arise to you. This is nourishment to the angels. This is you lifting up this harvest of the day to the angels. Now, the angels are there to help us interpersonally relating with each other. And uh, they help provide the warmth and the, uh, the, the, the sense of vibrancy that occurs in a relationship. So, feed them. David, when I go to different museums and I look at the artwork and the Renaissance and all of the different periods, angels are always depicted as, as these... Uh, manifestations with large wings on their back and uh, gold halos around their heads. When you're saying angels, is that what you're picturing, or do you have a different concept in your mind? Yeah, uh, different. So the um, I do believe that people have sighted beings that look like that, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, and I've had experiences, la di da. But the point is that if you really feel into it, it takes a huge amount of energy for an angelic being to appear in that form. And their more, their more true form is boundaryless, has a vibration, a quality of resonance, but with not, a, not with a boundary, doesn't look like a certain thing, doesn't look like it really belongs in the 17th century and not now. I mean, the mm-hmm. angels are kind of timeless that way. Mm-hmm. And that if you can be aware of the feeling that you have going into a room, or the feeling that you have interacting with another, that you 
if you have go to be with somebody and you have a feeling of quickening in your whole torso and your brain suddenly goes, whoosh, what was I thinking about? Because it's actually this empty cavern or you have a tingling in your groin, even that, even that one, that really to say that this, this is a presence. This is not just <clears throat> chemicals and uh, hormones secreting. This is, yes, those are involved as effects, not as causes. Mm-hmm. That just to entertain that as a possibility. I have then to think become, about that. Yeah. Effects, not as causes. Okay. Continue. Important. Important. I mean, all this, I'm not d- denying all the physical stuff that medical science has, uh, has been able to discover. Fantastic work has been done. It, it, it's in a zone. It's in a small, it's in a small zone. Let's talk about that work for a moment. <clears throat> when we talked about psychology and counseling uh, in, the, in the beginning, it sounds ge- geneti- genesis-like, uh, a lot of it was talk therapy. And then we started, uh, in medicine, we went into drug therapy, looking for neurotransmitters and hormones and things to depress something or to stimulate something <laughs> or to wipe something out. As we're moving into this future now, uh, learning more about the genome and the concepts of there might be a gene that has to do with uh, God or or religion or spirit or soul. There might be a gene that has to do with uh, uh, manic depressive bipolar disorders. And then as we look at the actual structure of the brain and the way it's connecting with the functional MRIs, learning about the hippocampus and memory and the, the stem the brain stem and dreams and different parts of the brain uh, being parts of where ego might lie and controls. How do you see the future in terms of working with people and healing, especially with the soul and spirit? Yeah. So uh, this uh, materialism is uh, in its heyday and is <laughs> having a great time at uh, finding uh, material answers to every question. And it's a little like this, and I take this metaphor from Rupert Sheldrake, whose work is wonderful and often criticized by people who haven't actually read what he's done, So, which is too bad because they really ought to. Um, so Sheldrake responds to this one in the following way. He said, oh, I'm, I'm looking at a television. I'm seeing these wonderful images on this television. Where could those possibly be? quick, get the screwdriver, and uh, I'm going to start taking this television (laughs) apart. And oh my God, there's this little thing, you know, I'll call it a capacitor or a transistor or a, you know, a, you know, a little device. It must be in one of those places where all these images are originated. (laughs) It's a lot like that. Materialism likes to uh, point to things that it can see or measure. So all the brain studies, which are fantastic because they show the, you know, which, which part of the brain heats up because of what you're thinking, where your memory is stored, visual memory, visual memory, or uh, tone memory, or moral memory. Uh, so that's very interesting research. And it's very clear that your brain is like, as in the transistors and the you know, it's a wonderful organism, but I like the transistors and the capacitors and the the various tubes or whatever, you know, is in the back of your television, um, the, the important structures for making these things happen. And it's not big enough to, to access all of you, to understand or to contain all of your psychic realities or potentials. Will it ever be? The brain? I think the brain is actually evolving. Um, certainly, anthroposophy talks about that. Even evolution, we probably don't want to go there right at the moment. It's too big a topic. But uh, the, the idea that the human being is this astonishingly wonderful organism. In anthroposophy, we understand the human body not as the product. I'm, here I am going into evolution. We're not, we don't <laughs> understand the body as a product of random uh, natural selection. Well, it's not natural or, or any kind of selection of random uh, mutations. We're actually understand the body as a mirror of the cosmos. Mm. And 
that all of creation can indeed be focused, can be accessed and focused through the human body, through its parts. And the brain plays a very important function in this regard as a, as, as a, a terrific friend. I mean, just even the um, notion from, uh, where did I get this from? Dispenza, Joe Dispenza. Um, but, you know, it has anthroposophic f- uh, priors to it. Uh, the idea, the, it was very well depicted in one of Dispenza's works, that uh, d- depending on what we think about, there goes our structures of the brain. We actually are co- constantly Every, every neuron, how many do we have? 100 billion? Every neuron has five chemical um, activities per second. That and we the, know of so far. That we know of so far. And that actually the, the, the dendrites of the neurons are interconnecting, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and reconnecting. Depending on, how you, on what you're thinking about. Depending on what you're attending to. So this has to do with the, the, the negative spiral of the fear response that you see in PTSD, mm. post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, and it also has the, um, the potential then to discipline your brain through, through various kinds of thinking. This is why prayer can be so powerful to actually reconnect them. Reconnecting exons and dendrites? That was axons, by the way. We're not talking about an oil company. We're talking uh, about axons. Yeah, it did sound like I said exons, <laughs> didn't it? <laughs> uh, good point. Thank you for that. You know, we are. A f- it seems like when we do our studies of the brain and the material parts of the brain, that uh, as a species, we're we're basically fear based. But there's got to be a balance there. Mm. There's always the yin and the mm. yang. So are we also <laughs> love based also, for example? And how come we didn't go in that direction? If we are? How come we didn't? What as a culture as a species? Yeah, as, a, as a species, it seems like, uh, you know, we look at the world today. And we look at, uh, for example, Israel, and the Palestinians coming together at a meeting, they're not in there with love. They're in there with fear and mistrust and, and negotiating. And it seems like we do that with everything. So it seems, and of course we know that fear and the adrenaline and cortisol responses, fight or flight responses are there. But we also know that we have uh, love and we have feelings for people. But it seems like the overall uh, modus operandi of our species is to move toward fear first. Is that what psychology is trying to get us out of? Yeah, so you as a doctor would also see the negative medical effects of concentrating on fear responses, fear phenomena that actually is accumulative mm-hmm. and uh, the field of what is it called psychoneuroimmunology Really right. talks about how the the emotional state that you are living in has a huge effect on this very complicated system we call the immune system. Yeah, so you would you could probably give a wonderful talk right now about that. But I'll respond to your question. Hmm. Um, if you you need to look around, so in anthroposophy we talk about this balance between sympathy and antipathy happening. All the time. Happening, happening like if you were to look at a, a sunlight on a lake where there's a little bit of wind and it's shimmering, right? Right. We have that many inputs. It's that rapid that each of those little shimmers um, really has within it a dynamic of um, a- a- appraisal as well as sympathy and antipathy. And uh, so it's always a question of how to put those in balance. So imagine this group of people coming into a room, or uh, you're talking about Palestinians and Israelis. Mm-hmm. Now focus on the ways in which sympathy is working. You've talked about antipathy, and it's, it's sound, these these gatherings have been frustrating. I've I've been to Israel eight times, and. That's a different story. So I, but I've been in those fields of energy. And, but, if, but look at in the room or at any place how sympathy, how the love, what you're talking about, a form of love mm-hmm. is functioning all the time. 
I'm, I'm focusing on it. We could, we, we could also use the word compassion, I guess, right? Compassion as a, yeah, the love spectrum is, includes a lot of things. Right. Right. The, the Greeks had five different kinds of love that they named. Uh, and we use the word love to, to cover them all. We're, let's talk about mental health for a few minutes. You, you know, there's, I mean, there's people on the entire spectrum of mental health, but occasionally there are normal people out there that are uh, focused on something happens to them. They just got a diagnosis. They were, they're, they're a very healthy person, happy person, living through the day. They're not on any medications. And suddenly they get a diagnosis that they have a cancer or that they have a disorder like uh, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. Certainly that's going to affect their health, right? Or their mental health anyway, and the rest of their health. I'm wondering if you have a suggestion in terms of preventive medicine, how people that don't have a problem right now can exercise their mental capacities so that when they come across something that has the potential to cause a mental health disorder, they can be trained for it and work through it in a, in a better manner. That's whenever I sit with a client, mm-hmm. I'm sitting with another human being across from me. Right. When I understand that that person is ensouled rather than a what a, a you know a plastic bag full of liquids fluids which because we're mostly water a, mm-hmm. a plastic bag full of fluids and, and pain and suffering if I understand that that is a human being that came into this earth plane with a kind of a sense of mission of growth growing growing the soul. And that that really that person is ensouled and has a destiny of some kind. This is all anthroposophic psychology I'm talking about. The idea of destiny is huge. Then I understand that it's not for me to interfere with their process. I can assist, but it's not for me to want to reduce their symptoms at all costs. So often with some of these medical uh, solutions, um, the, the side effects, the secondary effects are so severe that you wonder, why am I doing this? Uh, for example, uh, someone who's given um, drugs where they sleep 20 hours a day and that other four are kind of zombie-like because they're the, the, the trying to deal with a particularly difficult disease. I, okay, okay, <laughs> I, can, I can talk about this from a certain point of view. It's in the counselor, actually, in, the, in chapter one. It's very, very helpful, I feel, to understand anthroposophic psychology. We have a, we have a dimension of pathos. So you're really, you're really very pathetic or you're, very, you're not very pathetic. Not very pathetic people we call normal, and they just go around, they go along and do their lives. Pathetic people, increasingly pathetic people are having more and more difficulties, psychological and medical, until we get to extremely pathetic people who are in dire straits and great difficulty. And we tend to uh, respond to that dimension in both psychology and medicine. How do I reduce the pathos? How do I you know, reduce those horrible sufferings that we can experience in people and see that. And we, we are drawn to want to respond, but how to respond? That's the question. So rather than just trying to people bring people down in their pathos to a low pathos level, there's another dimension, spiritus. So it really has to do with what is your spiritual level? What, how do you work with this spiritually? If you look at the, um, if you look at the lives of artists, for example, they, they start with a, um, many, not all, but you can, we, can, we can think of examples. You start, they start with a spiritual development, and they can sometimes go into the most horrible levels of pathos. And what we're actually interested in helping is for them to mature spiritually. So, 
you know, temporary drugs that knock you out and make you sleep 20 hours a day. And the side effects seem to be stronger than the, the, you know, the primary effects. And if you look at any of these ads and magazines for drugs and you look at the, you know, the, the side effects are this long, (laughs) the whole bottom half of the page is side effects. This could happen to you. And, uh, you, you think, huh, okay. What, what are the, you know, I know what your intended effect is, but what is the really, what, what am I really signing up for when I start doing chemotherapy, for example? And it may be mm-hmm. appropriate. I would have nothing against that if it's done consciously. But, you know, to say, okay, for the next 20 years, you're going to sleep 20 hours a day, and you're not the, rest, the other four hours of the day, it's good, you're going to have no life. Then I'm asking, are we helping that person with, meet the destiny that they were born into this world to achieve, to, to, uh, to grow? Is it all destiny? I love that. Let's just say that again. Is it all destiny? Let Christina say it. Christina's I'd love to hear mesmerized Christina. right now. She, I, you, you have completely, I, 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 I want to <laughs> sit and keep this thing going for hours. <laughs> Ooh, is it all destiny? I tell you, this is a, a magnificent show, David. Thank you. Um, I have a very a, a question. Growing up, connecting with spirits, and thank goodness at that time, my father was very conscious and said, mm. don't you ever dare tell anybody about this mm. because they might they're going to think you're wacky. <laughs> you know, that was the time. That was a generation. People feared. Mm-hmm. What happens at this day and age? Have we come to a different point in our humanity that there are more people who are becoming more conscious of spirituality, the connection to the spiritual world? Uh, yes, and I want to ask you how it feels that when you were instructed never to tell anybody, and now you're telling, how does it feel? Fantastic. It took, <laughs> it, no, it, it was years. I mean, it was, uh, you know, when, when what was interesting, someone came into my life one day, was the patterns that sort of come, you deny, you deny, but you can't deny. I mean, it, they're there. <laughs> and then some right. s- someone came up to me one day and said, Open the box. Right. And I knew exactly what they were saying. A total stranger. Right. And it wasn't a hit. <laughs> it was just, I knew he knew exactly what was happening. And right. through that, one led to the next person that came into the knife and the next person. And suddenly, there is a core of people that I am so uh, grateful for that have no fear, but instead nurture, nurture all the people around them to connect. Yeah. So this person who was a stranger who actually gave you something key, did you ever know this person later? Oh, yes. And as, as time went on, it, it's uh, clear that it is um, like a karmic past life. Individual. With this person? Yes. And so... Mm-hmm. Yes, and many more that came into my path as the years have gone on. So anthroposophic psychology is unusual in psychology because we work with reincarnation. Uh, not linear, not oversimplified, but really working with what comes into your body, actually your physical body, mm. that is meant to be worked out in the course of this life that came from previous lives. Mm. Okay, you ready for a really interesting one? This is this is complicated anthroposophy, but I'll give it'll give you an idea of what we're talking about. Uh, when a counselor works with a client, they are accessing the client's past lives as lived through their etheric or life body, their buzz body. Uh, 
you know, all these things have to be worked with, characterized, not defined, but we haven't gotten there yet. But you can, I'm just giving you an idea. And the counselor accesses to be truly with the client is not asking the client to imitate me, you know, just, oh, I'm, 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 I don't have your problem. Just be like me. That's not the way we work. They're actually, the counselor is actually accessing a future life working through the, um, the astral or starry or uh, um, energy uh, body, mm. higher energy body. Okay, so do you get this, that they're really coming from different places, both the client and the counselor? And um, that these are, it's a technical, I've given you some technical terms, just to, but just to get, alert you to the idea that, oh my God, the way we interrelate with each other is uh, not just one body bag to another body bag, but really it's <laughs> spirit to spirit. Yes. Yes, beautiful. So uh, one thing more, Christina, about what you've said is that uh, it's really important. Yes, we're more in relationship to spirit now. I, I agree with you. And anthroposophy talks about the different kinds of spirits in great detail. And uh, rather than, it, oh, that was a spiritual experience. Oh, well, what kind of spiritual experience was that? Who, who were involved? And how were the adversarial spirits showing up? Too often we find people who go to spirit land and it's actually kind of what I would call a, uh, an imposter coming forward to give them a good show. And we have to be very careful with that. This is why scientists poo-poo it because it's really, um, you, because they're, they're right that they're, people come forward with the most horrible illusions that, mm -hmm. uh, about things that, Especially, you can really tell. People say they want to go, I'm, I'm done. I want to be out of my body. I want to go home. That's a, well, where's home? Home's right here. Mm -hmm. This is what you've been given. The, just the amount of energy that was taken by the divine beings to create this opportunity, this body to work with. Huge amount of effort. So work with it. Don't try to get out of it. Mm. Mm, beautiful. David, uh, just... I'm bouncing. Just, <laughs> bouncing, okay. <laughs> Amplitude and frequency, do we have a record? Oh, wow. <clears throat> David, uh, a quick question, and then I want to get on to another question. You just talked about when you work with people, and you, talk, you were talking about reincarnation and karma and past and helping their future. Are you talking about uh, a future incarnation, or are you talking about potentially a future two weeks from now, or both? I love it. Both. Both. Okay. Um, and to, what, you know, people talk about ascension or wanting to uh, move on or go to heaven or, you know, even get in a spaceship and go somewhere. So, um, are you really ready for that? <laughs> are your thoughts that pure? I mean, actually, we're talking about every thought, you know, in, in uh, every thought has energy. Do you really have, have you, have you done all that? Are you, is your heart just overflowing with love? And are your thoughts completely pure? And all your deeds, have you, are your deeds completely purified? No, this is our school. This is such an opportunity. Don't leave school in kindergarten. <laughs> Continue. <laughs> I'm glad those were rhetorical questions. I, w I wasn't totally ready to answer all of them. <laughs> Speaking about kindergarten, uh, we always like to work with kids, and I wonder if from a mental health point of view and an anthroposophic point of view, do you have some guidance that you would suggest to children as they move forward into uh, realms of teenage and then adulthood for mental health, of course? Yeah. Um, the first thing that a child before the age of seven should do is give back all your screens to your parents and grandparents. Screens? Yeah. Computers, iPads, uh, little, you know, the babysitters of the modern age. Yeah. Um, because it's actually rewiring your brain. I mean, it's so interesting. I've been wanting to write an article for the AARP saying, yeah. grandparents, by giving these kids these screens... You know, you're wanting to be the best grandparents and, and do, it, do your job right, but you are actually stunting the 
moral judgment centers mm. <laughs> in the brain. Mm. And these are the ones that you're expecting to take care of you later? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Totally so, agree. <laughs> the first seven years is really the the physical world, the the wonder to to cultivate wonder, and you can see how kids are so glued to the screens because they're looking for movement, they're looking for energy, and they're actually being pointed in the wrong direction. Whereas actually looking at a little bee in a flower, or a little or a bird flitting here and there, or actually touching bark of a tree. These are real experiences, or if you're in the city, I mean, touching the sidewalk, you know, feeling concrete, feeling what wrought iron feels like, all those things are where the first seven years should be aimed. And then after that, when you're talking about seven to 14, you're talking about find a person or an initiative that really fits your sense of ideals. Mm. And then 14 to 21, you take, that, you take that even further so that you actually are acting, doing deeds within a zone where you, which you feel relates to your ideals. And if there are any adults telling you that you're just a, bag, a body bag full of fluids and genes uh, and um, chemicals, tell them, you know, feel pity for them and move on. When uh, I asked you that question, although I had no expectations or attachments, it was... It, <laughs> yes, you did. Yes, you was, did. <laughs> it was a much better answer than I could have even imagined. <laughs> and I thank you for that. That was great. Yes, Christina's right. Yeah. <laughs> Again. I love it. I, I just wanted to hoot and howl and went, yes, I'm doing something right. <laughs> I'm raising my child right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. David, do you, uh, looking back, you've taken care, you've had many clients over the years, and you've worked with people at different levels of your own enlightenment and ascension. Do you ever think back on maybe there would have been someone you could have talked to with this new knowledge and wanted to reach out to them again? Yes. That's a good enough answer for me. (laughs) We're coming close to the end of our show, and we're speaking with Dr. David Tresmer, an anthroposophic psychologist and author. And it's time to ask for a health tip. And although it sounds like almost everything you've said has been a great tip, do you have something special for us? I won't Uh, accept the yes, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, I had to be brief in at least one of my answers. <clears throat> so, um, yeah, I, I do. I actually feel that you three have created a, well, three. I mean, the, the empty slot is me today. But the, the two of you have created, plus this third slot, uh, a medium. And that uh, my health tip would be for people to watch it. And I actually, I, I really feel that. I think you've done a really successful job of creating a format or a uh, platform where people can speak forward. And, you know, I've done interviews in a lot of places, and I really appreciate the quality of your questions and the, uh, the, the quality of your listening. Now, that is something that I would recommend. So I'll do it right here. That's a health tip. Listen in. Well, that's a great health tip. That's going to be at the top of our uh, 2015 health tips. I know that. <laughs> before before we end the show, when you were preparing for this show, was there anything that you really wanted to bring out that we didn't get to today? Uh, Glenn, you're holding it in your hand. The mouse? Oh, that's good. No, I thought you previously you had a book, <laughs> and it's got lots of pages and lots of ideas. And I mean, I really, I, we really worked hard on that. There's so many new and revolutionary ideas as applied to mainstream psychology. I'm really worried about mainstream psychology. It's going to uh, drugs, psychopharmacology, and it's going to cognitive behavioral therapy, which is basically giving you some clever new ideas. It's sometimes done very well, very well, and oftentimes not. It's sort of this formulaic 
approach to the human being as a uh, as a well, it's a different sort of thing. It's a it's a body bag full of liquids and wh- hormones and genes and um, and thoughts. And if you get your thoughts lined up, then everything's okay. It's not. As people haven't heard about your book yet, where can they find it? Uh, it's on Amazon. On Amazon, it's also david-leela.com, and and I'm really excited because we have actually we have trainings now. Uh, trainings that are thirty people in upstate New York, thirty five people in California who are doing a three year training in anthroposophic psychology. I'm really, really devoted to that. Excited about that. Mm. We've never used the word anthroposophic as much on a uh, episode as we did today. <laughs> well, we I, personally, I'd never heard of it. <laughs> That's why we do this show. Yes, it's going to be. We have to one give credit to Segovia too. By the way, we have to give credit to Segovia as part of the team that has this platform going together. He makes it really happen. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Any final thoughts, Christina? Oh, so many. Are you kidding me? We need another show. <laughs> no, this is really brilliant. Thank you so much, David. Mm. Yes, I'm grateful to our very special guest uh, and my friend and colleague, Dr. David Tresmer, mm. for uh, sharing his wisdom and expertise with us. I want to thank all of my healers and teachers for helping me to get where I am today. And I look forward to getting together with everyone uh, next week as we search another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy. And until that time, David, thank you so much. We really learned a lot today. This was great. And I wish everyone optimal health. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much, David. (laughs) I I hope this one goes far and wide in in the reaches of our global platform here. And of course, thank you, Dr. Glenn Woolman, for another fantastic show. And we would like to thank each and every one of you for joining us in this new platform of education and information. We're grateful for your continuous support, and we look forward to hearing your feedback on how we can serve you better. If you would like to contact David Tresner, um, please do so through his website, david Lila L-I-L-A. David-Lila.com. And if you would like to connect with Dr. Glenn Woolman, do so through his website, glennwoolman.com, where I do encourage you to learn about his metaphor square breath. And again, we are always grateful for any feedback, suggestions, comments, and your likes on Facebook and, and uh, iTunes. Um, please give us a call or, or drop us a note through our comment box. Um, again, our number is 818-LET'S-TALK, 818-LET'S-TALK. And we look forward for you to join us next time. Namaste. Namaste.